You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haaraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh. Yahweh swore to them that he would not let them see the land that Yahweh had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so.
It's that time again. Welcome back. <laughs> I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet. This is the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm glad you're here. Today is Tuesday, August 8th, 2023. This is episode 683 of this podcast. That was a reading of Joshua chapter 5 in the Old Testament. And let's talk about it, shall we? Let's talk about Joshua chapter 5. And what makes up half of the chapter is a new generation circumcised because 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, that generation was not circumcised. The generation that came out of Egypt had been, but the generation that was born in the wilderness was not. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the generation that was born in the wilderness was not circumcised why is that? Is it because that same generation that perished in the wilderness was embittered and they decided to just continue on ignoring what God had commanded? Is it because it wasn't pressed? God didn't press the issue because they're in the wilderness? It doesn't say here, except that they were not. They were not circumcised in the wilderness but then here they were having crossed over the Jordan and it was time to clean things up. It was time to fix what had been neglected in the circumcision of these males. And if we stop for a moment and just think about this whole question of circumcision, it's an uncomfortable topic. And being someone who has eight children, seven sons, an eighth son on the way, do November, one daughter, I've had to explain a time or two to my children at various ages when they've asked, what is circumcision, dad? Why is circumcision a thing? I've had to explain it. It's an uncomfortable thing to explain. I've taught middle school youth group or led discussion for middle school youth group at our church here in Greeley slash Evans, Colorado. I've had to explain just briefly, ever so, ever so briefly, if anyone was not clear on what circumcision was, here's what it is. Yep, I know. That's weird. It's <laughs> uncomfortable. But think about what it would mean to have a whole generation of men who are of fighting age, and it's always men in the Bible, a whole generation of men who are of fighting age, having crossed over the Jordan in this miraculous way, now made extraordinarily vulnerable because of circumcision. Actually, if you go back in the biblical narrative, go back to the book of Genesis, before there were 12 tribes, there were 12 sons of Jacob, and a sister of those 12 sons was defiled. She was humiliated, it says in some translations. But any way you slice it, she was laid with by a prince of Canaan. She was laid with and taken when she was out strolling by herself without a chaperone, without someone to accompany her. And when her brothers found out about it, when they got home from tending the flocks and they found out that their sister had been humiliated in this way, and that the prince of Canaan, who had done the humiliating, 
had seen her, desired her, taken her, laid with her, wanted to now marry her, they came up with a scheme. And their scheme was to convince this prince and all of the men of his town to circumcise themselves because they said, well, we can't allow you to marry our sister or form some kind of an alliance with our people unless all of the men of your town are circumcised. But then they were being crafty. They were being devious. They were being tricksters. What they really intended was not to allow their sister to marry this prince. What they intended was for all of these men to be vulnerable after having been circumcised, to be vulnerable as they were recovering from circumcision as adult men. And then two of the number, two of the sons of Jacob, who would later be renamed by God Israel because he wrestled with God, two of these sons of Jacob took swords and went into the town and put every man in the town to the sword. While they were recovering, while they were basically defenseless, unable to stand to protect themselves, they were put to the sword. And so here we are. Here we are now with Israel having crossed over the River Jordan, these men of fighting age not having been circumcised in the wilderness, and God says, circumcise them. That's a very vulnerable place to put all of the fighting men of Israel. For one thing, this is God requiring that they make themselves vulnerable so that they trust in him. They don't trust in their own ability to protect themselves. They need to recognize that God is the one who defends them. God is the one who protects them. God is the one who fights for them. God is the one who's going to give them the victory. They are going to be circumcised physically, but then it's really circumcision of the heart that God is after. He wants a circumcised heart. And what that means is you make yourself vulnerable before God. Actually, what's interesting is at the end of this chapter, you have the commander of Yahweh's army who is standing with a drawn sword in hand near Jericho. Joshua sees him, goes up to him and asks, are you for us or for our enemies? And the answer is short, simple, sweet, No. (laughs) Are you for us or for our enemies? No. (laughs) Neither. See, none of the above. But I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. What is Joshua's response? To fall on his face to the earth. And it says in the ESV, worship. In the NASB, it says bow down. But either way, what is that? That is to make oneself vulnerable. To bow down is to make oneself entirely at the mercy of the other person. To bow down to somebody is basically to offer your neck in some sense. My life is at your disposal. If you want to kill me, you can kill me right now. If you want to send me on some mission that would mean my death, so be it. I am at your mercy. I am completely at your disposal. That's what it means to bow down to somebody. That's what it means if we would bow down to God. And that's part of the reason why this whole generation of fighting men who have just crossed over the River Jordan are going to be circumcised because 
They're putting themselves by God's command entirely at God's mercy. It will be at God's mercy that they are protected. But also what's interesting is you have manna right up until this point. The people of Israel are still eating manna right up until they keep the Passover and eat the produce of the land of Canaan, which is to say the manna was not to be forever any more than circumcision was to be forever, but it was a sign of things to come. It was God's provision and protection for a time that this people needed to learn to rely on. And similarly, in this age, we know in part, we prophesy in part, as Paul says in the New Testament, we see now through a glass dimly, even many of the things today that as Christians we participate in are just a sign and a symbol and a reminder of what is to come. What God is fulfilling and will fulfill, we are to be cognizant of and remind ourselves of, and it's good for us to be reminded of how he kept his promises and fulfilled his promises to Israel, how he was faithful to Israel. Also, it's interesting to think about, and I don't quite know how long this commander of the army of Yahweh was standing here, drawn sword in hand, verses 13 through 15. But maybe this commander of the army of Yahweh had been standing there for all of the time that Israel was recovering from circumcision. And maybe he wasn't seeing the armies of Israel on the one hand and the angelic host, Yahweh's army, were there on the field, and maybe Israel did not perceive that God had sent his own angels, his own angelic hosts, to protect and to watch over Israel here until they were through it. Earlier on in the biblical narrative, in the story of God's relationship with this people, Balaam didn't see an angel standing in the way, sword drawn, ready to kill Balaam because he was on his way to give bad counsel to Midian, to entrap the people of Israel, particularly the men, to lure them away into whoredom, which is to say not just sexual immorality, but idolatry, the worship of the gods of the nations. Maybe also here, albeit for a different reason, you have the angelic host waiting in the wings, no pun intended, for if the enemies of Israel will come against them. And maybe Joshua is not allowed to perceive it until the danger has passed, so to speak, so that he is aware that actually this is not a question of whether God is on your side, his angels are on your side, God is on the side of your enemies, his angels are on the side of your enemies. No, maybe actually God is on his own side and the real question is, are you on God's side? Because God is always right. But think about the image of celebrating the Passover, the first Passover in Canaan, verses 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Where are they? The plains of Jericho. There's a battle expected and obedience is also expected. And it's not either or. 
either this is a time of war or this is a time for you to obey God. No, no. This is a time for obedience and also it's wartime. I'm reminded of a certain discernment ministry blogger, former pastor who has been defrocked in the last year or so from Sydney, Montana, where I and my family moved to Greeley, Colorado from in late 2019. I'm reminded of a certain pastor whose excuse for being disobedient to God in his way of relating to people in his own church, in his community, in America more broadly, his excuse was, this is a time of war. This is a time of war, and therefore, I don't have to be kind. I don't have to be gentle. I don't have to be respectful. I don't have to be courteous. I don't have to be respectful of other men who also have authority. No, no. This is a time of war. That's not how it works. It's always a time for war, and God knew that it was a time for war and spiritual warfare when he gave commands for how we treat one another. As God's people, we're not supposed to be harsh, cruel, rude, selfish, seeking our own ambitions, promoting ourselves. All the more reason rather than less, if it's a time of war, we should be obeying Yahweh. We should be obeying Christ, our Savior. But I repeat myself. This whole business of circumcision is not sensible from a tactical standpoint, only humanly speaking, except that there is an expectation that blessings come with obedience. God wants obedience first. He wants faithfulness first. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, which is to stay in his word, to abide in his word. The dude abides. Righteousness, that you would seek it, that it would be his righteousness, is to say you obey. You obey God. But also, I want to point out the importance of who we put ourselves entirely at the mercy of. And again, as I said in our previous episode, we see Joshua having authority. He has the ability to command, and the expectation is when Joshua gives a command, you Listen, but what kinds of commands does he give? He gives the kinds of commands that God tells him to give. And so there is no conflict. Joshua is not acting here from selfish ambition and vain conceit. He's obeying himself. He is under authority himself. And therefore, he is blessed in exercising the authority that's been entrusted to him. And he's not just making stuff up and he's not just doing his own thing. He's not testing the limits of his power. In fact, he's keeping it very sparse, very straight, very to the point. When God tells him to do this or tell the people of Israel that, that's exactly what he does. That's exactly what he says. And that's part of why he has authority when he speaks, because it's short, simple, to the point, and entirely consistent with what God has done, what God has said in the past. This is a good lesson for us to keep in mind. And it's not to say that there's no room for innovation or interpretation, but it is to say we should be concerned when some who wield authority, legitimate authority in the abstract, in a general sense, presume absolute authority or exercise their authority in an arbitrary way. Because it is possible for someone who has some authority 
to exceed the bounds of what is appropriate for them to command. And then to say, ah, if you're not willing to do that, or if you're questioning whether that's an appropriate command for me to give you, you have sinned because you're supposed to submit. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Wait. It's not that simple always. For instance, the midwives who are ordered by Pharaoh to kill the baby boys of Israel. They don't submit to that order. In fact, they ignore it. And then when questioned about why they are not obeying the order, they lie to the Pharaoh. Oh, these Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are strong. Before we even get there, they've already given birth. And then what can we do? What can we do? No partial birth abortion in their cases. And God rewards them. God blesses them. God doesn't punish them. God doesn't send prophets to rebuke them. You're supposed to be under authority. You're supposed to submit to authorities. I've put Pharaoh in authority over Israel. I've given Israel over to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. You're supposed to do whatever he tells you. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. When you fast forward into Babylonian captivity, and I'm getting ahead of where we're at in Joshua, I understand, but the request that there would be a different diet for these Hebrew youths, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, the request for a different diet so that they can obey God, so that they can honor God, so that they're not eating things God has told them not to eat. That's not just blind, unquestioning obedience to authority, to arbitrary human authority. And what? God blesses them for it. They're seen to be more excellent than their peers, not less excellent. When the command is given to bow down and worship the golden statue of the king, and the response is, O king, live forever. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. They're thrown into the furnace, and what does God not do? God does not leave them to their demise. God does not send a prophet to chime in at that moment. Whoa, these guys deserve death. You're right, because they're supposed to only obey this human authority as sent by God. Haven't they read Romans 13? Yeah, throw them in. No, God rescues them from the fire and gives them his favor. He blesses them. He doesn't just protect them. He also blesses them with favor. And then later on, Daniel is being set up. He's being entrapped by jealous others. Why are they jealous? Because they're not as excellent as Daniel. They can't keep up with him. They're envious. They're bitter. They have to find a way to cut him down. And so they appeal to the king in a very oily way, in a very dishonest way, in a very deceptive way. Oh, king, live forever. You should make a new law. We've decided. You should make a law to test everyone, forbidding them to pray to anyone to any God except for you for 30 days. And anyone who violates that law should be thrown to the lions. Now, what is this? Why does this appeal to the king? Because this would be a very useful way to purge people who are non-compliant from his court and from his kingdom. Are you worried about traitors? Are you worried about people who might challenge you, who might contradict you, who might erode the confidence that others have in whatever you command, whatever you say, whatever you do, here's your opportunity to purge them from 
your organization, from your court, from your kingdom, and the king falls for the trap. He falls for the trap, and what is he not doing? He's not exercising the authority that God has allowed him to have over men in the civil sphere. He's not exercising that authority in a way that honors God to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil. He is now operating from selfish ambition and vain conceit. He was set up to do so by other men who are craftier than he is, and they'll get theirs. Don't worry. But also remember, Daniel hears about this new order. He goes straight home. He goes straight home and he prays to God. And the men who are waiting for just that are watching and waiting and they report it to the king. And then the king realizes this was a setup from the beginning. This was selfish ambition and vain conceit. This was a trap because you guys hate Daniel and you wanted to put him on my bad side. I've been played. You guys just manipulated me. But then what does he not do? He doesn't rescind the order. He doesn't say, ah, wait a second, I take it back. Why? Because now his authority, just like it was going to be shored up and bolstered with the order that they tricked him into issuing, the decree that they tricked him into making, so also if he takes it back, he's just shown himself to be fallible, prone to making mistakes, and what else is he making a mistake on? Maybe that's the beginning of the end for his reign if he takes it back. And so they throw Daniel to the lions. And God shuts the mouths of the lions and protects Daniel and doesn't just protect him. God also gives favor to Daniel in the eyes of everyone, in particular the king. At the end of the story, those who had set up Daniel are themselves thrown to the lions. But this is a cautionary tale, and it has to be factored into our political theology. It has to be. And not just in the civil space, not just in the civil sphere, also in the ecclesiological sphere, also in the home. If I, as a father, for instance, for example, am just barking out orders just because I can, just for the fun of it, Oh, you have to obey. I'm going to tell you to do things that make zero sense and are foolish and wasteful just to amuse myself. If I'm telling my sons that, for instance, for example, and then they're frustrated, I'm actually in sin. That's what the word of God says. I'm in sin because fathers are not supposed to provoke their children to wrath. They're not supposed to provoke their sons to frustration, which is to say fathers are capable of doing that if they abuse the authority that God has entrusted to them. And God doesn't want that. Why? Because it erodes the respect those sons are going to have for authority more broadly. If the commands are arbitrary and capricious and nonsensical and frivolous and wasteful, if they abuse the dignity of the other person, well, shame on those fathers. When a similar kind of a thing happens in the church, or someone with authority from God abuses their authority and it causes frustration, there is more to figure out than just, did the layperson obey uncritically, submit to uncritically, whatever the pastor said, whatever the overseer, the elder, the bishop, the deacon ordered? There's more to figure out than just that. In the civil space, when it comes to the civil government emperors and governors or whatever their equivalents are in your context, 
There's more to know than just, were you given an order? Did you follow it? There's also the question of, is this within the bounds? Is this an appropriate, lawful order? How do we know? Well, for one thing, if it contradicts what God has told us to do, what we know to be in keeping. What's interesting is, for instance, in the case of the Hebrew midwives, there had been no giving of the law with regards to murder, and yet it was written on the heart. It was known that it's wrong to murder. It was known. It was plain. It was evident. It was common sense. In part, you might say, because it had been passed down through oral tradition, or maybe it had been written down and it was just collected by Moses as he wrote the Pentateuch. But what Cain had done to Abel was known by these people and that that was a sin and that it was wicked that God had sent a flood because the earth was filled with violence. It was known that that is wrong. And yet, just as clearly, it was known that not all violence is murder, but some is unjust. And there is more to know than just does the person with authority have a sword for something These baby Hebrew boys had done no wrong. They were innocent. The Hebrew midwives knew that it would be a sin to kill these baby boys. And so they wouldn't do it. And they didn't do it. And God rewarded them. But what do we not find in the text? We don't find any instance of someone coming up to the Hebrew midwives and saying, unless you can find an exact quote from God telling you you're not allowed to do this thing, then you're in sin. You're supposed to submit to Pharaoh. I expect you to get back in there and strangle those Hebrew baby boys. No, 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 no. There's not even a whiff of that. Not even a hint of any such thing. In fact, quite the opposite. God rewards. God sees. He notes their goodness, their justice in obeying God rather than men in this case. And he rewards them and their households for it. But It's appropriate for those who have authority to wield authority as God intended. It's very, very important. It's very important that I, as a father, wield the authority that God has entrusted to me in an appropriate way. I don't always. And when I don't, it's important for me to admit that and to apologize, yes, even to my children, yes, even to my wife, but especially to repent to God. I'm sorry, Lord, for abusing the authority that has been invested in me. Please forgive me. Please show me your ways. Please help me to apply what you have entrusted to me, both your word and opportunities and positions of influence or authority. Please, Lord, help me. Guide me by your spirit, by your word. When I do that as a husband, as a father, I'm setting a good example and I am also building trust. And I'm also pointing my wife and my children and all others back to God because God is the only one ultimately who perfectly uses his authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the only one who perfectly exercises that authority. And all the rest of us have to be willing to admit when we've biffed it. Just think for yourself for a moment here about The fact that Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Think about that for just a moment. That is presented to us 
It is not glossed over. It's not swept under the rug. It's not thrown in the closet hurriedly so that it looks like we've got a clean room here. Moses is not the point. Moses is a servant, and insofar as he disobeyed his master, for all to see, he is also held up as a cautionary tale for all time. He's not just exemplary because of his faith. He's also an example of the importance of doing what God told us to do in the way that God told us to do it. Now, what's interesting too is when he comes to the waters of Meribah, he has a choice. He can obey God. He can do what God told him to do. He can speak to the rock for all Israel to see and hear. He can obey and be under authority himself, or he can do what he did, which is strike the rock. And you think, oh, what's the big deal? As long as water comes out of the rock at the end of the day, like, God, is this so serious? Yes, it's actually that serious. It is actually that serious. And God himself disciplines the disobedience of Moses in a way that must have really pained Moses for as often as it comes up. And Moses is obviously bitter about it. He blames who? The people. He blames the people. It was your fault, guys. Just like Adam in the garden, it was the woman you gave me. So there's a double whammy there. It's the woman's fault that I ate of the fruit that was forbidden, and it's your fault, God, ultimately because you gave me the woman. I mean, really, this is kind of your fault. You kind of set me up for this. God's not impressed by that. And actually, part of the reason why work is toilsome and so often frustrating in our context, it is, yes, our sinful nature, our bad attitude, but it's also objectively harder than it would have been otherwise. It is objectively less enjoyable. That's part of the curse. You don't like that? Well, in the new heavens and the new earth, it would seem vocation will not be so frustrating. But God is not going to issue some kind of a blanket amnesty to Adam in the garden or Moses at Meribah just because they had authority. Nor either do any of the kings, Old Testament or New Testament, get blanket amnesty just because they had authority. When Herod accepts without correcting it, being referred to as a god, he's struck dead. He's eaten by worms. He's a cautionary tale. As much as he had authority, yes, he is now a cautionary tale. He is now a byword. He is now an example of how not to be. And so backing up a little bit, just briefly, I want to explain that this is actually very core to why in the West, in countries where Christianity has flourished, particularly Protestant Christianity, Literacy is so important. Why? Because if you're not literate, if you can't read, then you can't read God's word. And if you can't read God's word, then you don't know when actually you should be submitting to a person who has authority, humanly speaking, and when you should say, we must obey God rather than men. If you can't read the Bible for yourself, then you can't say, that's not what it says. That would dishonor God. That would disobey God. I can't do that. But then that's part of the reason why. In fact, that's the reason why there was so much opposition to the Bible being translated into the common vernacular, because the Roman Catholic Church was afraid. The establishment in the Roman Catholic Church, which, yes, had some authority from God, it wasn't lost on God that they had risen to positions of power and prominence, but with their authority, 
Also came the temptation to abuse the authority and to sin and to be presumptuous and to invalidate, declare null and void the commands of God in preference for the traditions and opinions of men. And when some said, let's translate the Bible into German or French or English or fill in the blank language, there was a lot of opposition from the status quo keepers in the Roman Catholic Church because next thing you know, people are going to be questioning, disagreeing with, contradicting, challenging, debating whether that mass or this decision of a council or this ex-cathedra statement of a pope is in keeping with what God has said. Who God is, what he's commanded, what he's promised, what he's done. But then the flip side is, that's exactly the point. (laughs) That is exactly the point. That's not a bug, it's a feature of Protestant Christianity. And not just in the context of the church and authorities in the church, also in the context of civil society, the civil government, the civil magistrate, also in the context of the home. It's important that you know how to read so that you can read the word of God. You can study it. You can meditate on it day and night and be blessed. It's important that you study to show yourself approved workmen who need not be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth so that you can protect yourself against false teaching so that you can guard your heart for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Your heart affects everything that you do, and you have to guard your heart. You guard your heart by meditating on the Word of God. Another curious example of this, and then we'll get into some current events items. Consider David pursued with murderous intent by Saul. Saul had authority. He was still king in Israel. He had not been unmade as king in Israel yet, but he was still king. He still had authority. Presumably, if civil authority was to be a blank check, all Saul needed to do was order David to present himself, come out, come out wherever you are, and then have him put to death on trumped up charges. Ah, you have embarrassed me. You have disrespected me. You are getting more acclaim. People are chanting. Saul has killed his thousands. David his tens of thousands. You must die. And yet we know that if Saul had done such a thing, that would have been murder, What he had in his heart in hating David was murder. He had, in fact, already committed murder in his heart to pursue and to hate David. And what did David not do? He didn't take vengeance, but he also didn't present himself as a willing victim to a murder plot. And again, this highlights Old Testament and New Testament, the limitations of authority. Yes, authority is to be obeyed. If God gives authority to a man, and it's always men, interestingly, if God gives authority, that does not mean he gives absolute authority and that that authority can never be disobeyed or questioned. No, that's an unhealthy, actually very unbiblical, very ignorant, very dangerous way of thinking about authority. But the test has to be, is the command in keeping with the letter and the spirit of what God has already told us to do and to be about. If it's not, then we must obey God rather than men. That's the test. And it's not always the letter. Sometimes it's the spirit of the law. Say, for instance, if the civil government orders 
as in the case of China, for instance, under the Chinese Communist Party, if the civil government orders husbands and wives to have no more than one child per household, is that the proper domain of the civil government? Yes or no? Is a husband obligated to obey that command any more than the Hebrew midwives were obligated to obey the command of Pharaoh to kill every baby boy born alive? Well, let's think about it. Did God ever rescind the dominion mandate? Ever? Did God ever give that kind of authority to any of his servants to forbid being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it? No, not ever. In fact, that command from the Chinese Communist Party ran directly counter to the earlier never rescinded dominion mandate, which was a mandate, which is to say a command. And so you know that it's a violation of the right, as in it would be righteous, generally speaking, for a husband and a wife to be together and for children to result. And there's more to it than just that, but so far so good. And so it would also be appropriate to tell the Chinese Communist Party, I'm disinclined to acquiesce to your request. You have exceeded the bounds of your authority. It means no, right? No. (laughs) We must obey God rather than men and flee the country if that's what it takes. Or else what? Do we expect God is going to punish Christians in China when they meet in secret, when they gather in secret in homes to worship him, to study his word, to have Bibles other than the approved translation or manipulated perversion that the CCP approves of and has sanctioned? Surely not. Surely not. We cannot be so foolish. Moving on, though, I would draw your attention to an April 2005 piece in Imprimis magazine, the magazine of Hillsdale College. Imprimis is Latin for in the first place. David McCulloch, born 1933, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, educated there and at Yale, author of John Adams, Truman, Brave Companions, The Path Between the Seas, Mornings on Horseback, which is an excellent, that's actually my favorite biography of Teddy Roosevelt, Mornings on Horseback is, great story. Uh, He also wrote The Great Bridge and the Johnstown Flood and 1776. You may have heard of the book 1776. That's a David McCulloch work. John Adams, his biography of John Adams is also very excellent, most excellent. But David McCulloch has, in recent years, passed away. Sadly, one of the best historians of my lifetime, if not the best. I'm probably partial to David McCulloch, but there are others. But in April 2005, this piece by him was published and It was a speech. Obviously, this is the transcript of a speech. But here he is talking about history and knowing who we are. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be about? Where are we going? You get that from history. The article reads as follows. Harry Truman once said, the only new thing in the world is the history you don't know. Lord Bolingbroke, who was an 18th century political philosopher, said that history is philosophy taught with examples. An old friend, the late Daniel Boorstin, who was a very good historian and librarian of Congress, said that trying to plan for the future without a sense of the past is like trying to plant cut flowers. We're raising a lot of cut flowers and trying to plant them, and that's much of what I want to talk about 
tonight. And again, what did I say? This was a dinner and he gave a speech and this is the transcript of the speech. He continues, the task of teaching and writing history is infinitely complex and infinitely seductive and rewarding. And it seems to me that one of the truths about history that needs to be portrayed, needs to be made clear to a student or to a reader, is that nothing ever had to happen the way it happened. History could have gone off in any number of different directions, in any number of different ways, at any point along the way, just as your own life can. You never know. One thing leads to another. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Actions have consequences. These all sound self-evident, but they're not self-evident, particularly to a young person trying to understand life. Nor was there ever anything like the past. Nobody lived in the past. If you stop to think about it, Jefferson, Adams, Washington, they didn't walk around saying, isn't this fascinating living in the past? (laughs) They lived in the present, just as we do. The difference was it was their present, not ours. And just as we don't know how things are going to turn out for us, they didn't either. It's very easy to stand on the mountaintop as a historian or biographer and find fault with people for why they did this or didn't do that because we're not involved in it. We're not inside it. We're not confronting what we don't know as everyone who preceded us always was. Nor is there any such creature as a self-made man or woman. We love that expression, we Americans, but everyone who's ever lived has been affected, changed, shaped, helped, hindered by other people. We all know in our own lives who those people are who've opened a window, given us an idea, given us encouragement, given us a sense of direction, self-approval, self-worth, or who have straightened out we ourselves when we were on the wrong path. Most often, they've been parents. Almost as often, they have been teachers. Stop and think about those teachers who changed your life, maybe with one sentence, maybe with one lecture, maybe by just taking an interest in your struggle. Family teachers, friends, rivals, competitors, they've all shaped us. And so too have people we've never met, never known, because they lived long before us, they have shaped us too. The people who composed the symphonies that move us, the painters, the poets, those who have written the great literature in our language. We walk around every day, every one of us, quoting Shakespeare, Cervantes, Pope. We don't know it, but we are all the same. We think this is our way of speaking. It isn't our way of speaking. It's what we have been given. The laws we live by, the freedoms we enjoy, the institutions that we take for granted— as we should never take for granted, are all the work of other people who went before us. And to be indifferent to that isn't just to be ignorant, it's to be rude. And ingratitude is a shabby failing. How can we not want to know about the people who have made it possible for us to live as we live, to have the freedoms we have, to be citizens of this greatest of countries in all time? It's not just a birthright. It is something that others struggled for, strived for, often suffered for, often were defeated for and died for, for us, for the next generation. Now let's pause to reflect on Joshua chapter 5 again. Joshua chapter 5 is the next generation after that generation that has wandered in the wilderness until all the fighting men who came out of Egypt died in the desert, died in the wilderness. Why did they pass away? Because they disobeyed God. They were faithless, grumbling constantly, disobedient, They died in the desert. Here is a new generation to be circumcised, to humble itself before the Lord, to obey the Lord, to have God fight for them and provide for them and to fulfill his promise. But it's God who is moving them towards his 
outcome. And there's a mystery to that. They only have his promises and they must trust them or disbelieve them and experience the consequences. But what David McCulloch was saying back in 2005 about this having been there present is so important for us to remember. Also, he's exactly right. And this is a very Burkean conservative idea. It's rude for us to only find fault with those who lived in the past or to dismiss them as irrelevant. It's rude. And it's disrespectful towards God. If God has given us these men to serve as examples, sometimes cautionary tales, other times good examples to follow of obedience, of faith, acted on, lived out. It's not just rude to those previous generations. We're not just dishonoring their memory. We're dishonoring God. If God gave us his word to read of these men and their relationship with him, because God was accomplishing his purpose through these men, not only ever in spite of them. And that's a pernicious insinuation when we only think God was ever accomplishing his purposes in spite of men. It seems to me something has crept into our thinking that is very either or instead of both and, which is not setting us up for success in thinking about eternity rightly. Some over the years I have noticed consistently pit a high view of God against having a high view of man. You can either have a high view of God or you can have a high view of man, but you can't have an appropriate view of both or the higher you view man or the more respect you show to man, the more dignity you show in your own conduct. Correspondingly, the much less you must respect God. That's not a biblical idea. That's a false dichotomy. And it might actually be a bit of excuse-making on the part of those who are not especially loving, they're not especially honorable, they are especially selfish, and they like to be chief. They like to be preeminent. It might not be so godly. It might actually be very self-serving and very disobedient, actually. But it's appropriate for us to have an appropriate view of God, which will be infinitely high. And it's appropriate for us to have an appropriate view of man which need not disrespect men, either past or present, but should be just. As in, if God has said that they were in the wrong, then they were in the wrong. And that's what it means to have a high view of God. But if God has said that they did well, then we say also, because we have a high view of God, those men did well. If God exalted Joshua in the context of crossing the Jordan, Are we having a high view of God if we say, oh no, Joshua was not exalted? Come again. (laughs) How do you reckon? What's concerning to me as I'm thinking about chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis would call it, what's concerning to me is we actually are having a rather low view of God. If God gave us these examples, good and also cautionary, in the scriptures, And if all we can do is find fault with all of them, I don't think that comes from a high view of God. As a matter of fact, I think what David McCulloch, honored historian, was getting at in his 2005 presentation here was actually the beginnings of the cancel culture we have been suffering from for the last 18 years, where statues are torn down, schools are renamed, Murals are painted over. 
history is revised along the lines of Howard Zinn. Why do I say along the lines of Howard Zinn? Because Howard Zinn is about as close to an antithesis to a David McCulloch as you get. Looking through history only for the bad, only for the dirtiest, most awful spin on the behaviors, the speech, the conduct, the principles of previous generations, leaving no stone unturned, leaving no hyperbolic exaggeration unused, so long as there's still some shred, some measure of respect for those who went before. It's an understatement to say that's rude. You might say it's bearing false witness against our neighbor. Also, honoring your father and mother as a principle comes into play here. Not that you so honor tradition that you invalidate the laws of God. By no means. If these men sinned and God presents that to us in his word, and God said, thou shalt not, but they said, yes, let's do it. You don't honor them. You're not respecting them to make excuses or revise history in the other direction to where it's all good. It's all good what they did. You can speak nothing ill of them. No. If they erred, if they sinned, if they set a bad example, if they're a cautionary tale, honor God first by being honest about that and agreeing with God. But that's the big idea is that you're agreeing with God. If God exalted them, then you also should honor them and the memory of them. If God brought them low, you also should reduce your investment in them of emotional stock, deference, uncritical admiration. But right now we have something of an opposite problem writ large to contend with. And even back in 2005, McCulloch saw this coming. He says a little ways down in this presentation, and I quote, we are raising a generation of young Americans who are by and large historically illiterate, and it's not their fault. There've been innumerable studies and there's no denying it. I've experienced it myself again and again. I had a young woman come up to me after a talk one morning at the University of Missouri to tell me that she was glad she came to hear me speak. And I said, I was pleased she had shown up. She said, yes, I'm very pleased because until now I never understood that all of the 13 colonies, the original 13 colonies were on the East Coast. Now you hear that and you think, what in the world have we done? How could this young lady, this wonderful young American, become a student at a fine university and not know that? Skipping on down. A couple of paragraphs later, he says, we have to do a far better job of teaching our teachers. We have too many teachers who are graduating with degrees in education. They go to schools of education or they major in education and they graduate knowing something called education, but they don't know a subject. They're assigned to teach botany or English literature or history. And of course they can't perform as they should. Knowing a subject is important because you want to know what you're talking about when you're teaching but beyond that, you can't love what you don't know. And the great teachers, the teachers who influence you, who change your lives, almost always, I'm sure, are the teachers that love what they are teaching. It is that wonderful teacher who says, come over here and look in this microscope. You're really going to get a kick out of this. McCulloch continues. There was a wonderful professor of child psychology at the University of Pittsburgh named Margaret McFarland, who was so wise that I wish her teachings and her ideas and her themes were much better known. She said that attitudes aren't taught, they're caught. If the teacher has an attitude of enthusiasm for the subject, the student catches that, whether the student is in second grade or is in graduate school. She said that if you show them what you love, they'll get it and they'll want to get it. 
Also, if the teachers know what they are teaching, they are much less dependent on textbooks. And I don't know when the last time you picked up a textbook in American history might have been. And there are, to be sure, some very good ones still in print, but most of them, it appears to me, have been published in order to kill any interest that anyone might have in history. I think that students would be better served by cutting out all the pages, clipping up all the page numbers, mixing them all up, and then asking students to put the pages back together in the right order. The textbooks are dreary. They're done by committee. They're often hilariously politically correct, and they're not doing any good. Students should not have to read anything that we, you, and I wouldn't want to read ourselves. And there are wonderful books, past and present. There is literature in history. Let's begin with Longfellow, for example. Let's begin with Lincoln's second inaugural address, for example. These are literature. They can read that too. Now, I'll stop here to say just briefly, and this is why we homeschool, and this is why we homeschool. (laughs) Also, I note the last name McFarland. My mother's mother's people were from Pennsylvania. Harrisburg, which is a little ways away from Pittsburgh, but nevertheless, McFarland's and Pennsylvania go together. I'm sure I'm distantly related to Margaret McFarland on my mother's mother's side. Interestingly, as I was trying to pull on this thread, because I want to know where I come from specifically, not just all of us, where do we all come from? I want to know where I come from specifically. Am I related to this woman? I haven't found that out yet. I haven't quite gotten to the bottom of it, how closely we might be related. But Margaret McFarland has a Wikipedia page that tells me she was born July 3rd, 1905, passed away September 12th, 1988. She was an American child psychologist and a consultant to the television show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Also co-founder and director of the Arsenal Family and Children's Center in Pittsburgh. Much of her work focused on the meaning of the interactions between mothers and children. Fred Rogers, that is Mr. Rogers himself, referred to McFarland as his major professional influence. She was a graduate of Goucher College and Columbia University. McFarland taught and conducted research With children in the U.S. and Australia, after earning a doctorate in childhood development, she taught at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts before returning to Pittsburgh in 1953 with pediatrician Benjamin Spock and psychologist Eric Erickson. She co-founded the Arsenal Center as a nursery school and counseling center for children and their families. Professionals from various fields came to the center to learn about child development. McFarland remained the center's director until 1971. McFarland and Spock also established a child development department at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Now, let me just pause right there and let me point out I'm uncomfortable with, but I want to understand better if McFarland was such a wonderful woman, how she could partner with Dr. Spock. I think Dr. Spock did quite a lot of damage to the relationship of parents to children in this country, convincing so many American parents, that they shouldn't tell their children, no, they shouldn't spank their child. They shouldn't discipline their child in a corrective way. They shouldn't apply the rod of correction to their children because they might thereby damage the self-esteem of the child. And without self-esteem, the child would grow up depressed, anxious, all the rest. This is part of why we study history, not just so that we can put people on a pedestal. If we have some possible connection to them, but so that we can learn from their mistakes, Switching over to the Wikipedia entry for Benjamin Spock, I read in his story, he was an American pediatrician and left-wing 
political activist whose book, Baby in Child Care 1946, is one of the best-selling books of the 20th century, selling 500,000 copies in the six months after its initial publication in 1946, 50 million by the time of Spock's death in 1998. The book's premise to mothers was that they, quote, know more than you think you do, end quote. Spock's parenting advice and recommendations revolutionized parental upbringing in the U.S., and he's considered to be amongst the most famous and influential Americans of the 20th century. Spock was the first pediatrician to study psychoanalysis to try to understand children's needs and family dynamics. His ideas about childcare influenced several generations of parents to be more flexible and affectionate with their children and to treat them as individuals. However, his theories were also widely criticized by colleagues for relying too heavily on anecdotal evidence rather than serious academic research. After undergoing a self-described conversion to socialism, Spock became an activist in the New Left and anti-Vietnam movements during the 1960s and early 1970s, culminating in his run for president of the United States as the People's Party nominee in 1972. He campaigned on a maximum wage, legalized abortion, and withdrawing troops from all foreign countries. At the time, his books were criticized by conservatives for propagating permissiveness and an expectation of instant gratification, a charge that Spock denied. Spock also won an Olympic gold medal in rowing in 1924 while attending Yale University. But what I'm interested in is some of his advice that was very bad. For instance, for example, Spock advocated that infants should not be placed on their back while sleeping, commenting in his 1958 edition that, quote, if an infant vomits, he's more likely to choke on the vomitus, end quote. This advice was extremely influential on healthcare providers with nearly unanimous support through to the 1990s. Later empirical studies, however, found that there is a significantly increased risk of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, associated with infants sleeping on their abdomens. Advocates of evidence-based medicine have used this as an example of the importance of basing healthcare recommendations on statistical evidence, with one researcher estimating that as many as 50,000 infant deaths in Europe, Australia, and the U.S. could have been prevented had this advice been altered in 1970 by 1970, when such evidence became available. Another issue with his advice, parental advice, was in the 1940s, Spock favored circumcision of males performed within a few days of birth. However, in the 1976 revision of Baby and Child Care, he concurred with the 1971 American Academy of Pediatrics Task Force that there was no medical reason to recommend routine circumcision. And in a 1989 article for Red Book Magazine, he stated that, quote, circumcision of males is traumatic, painful, and of questionable value, end quote. He received the first Human Rights Award from the International Symposium on Circumcision, ISC, in 1991, and was quoted saying, quote, my own preference, if I had the good fortune to have another son, would be to leave his little penis alone, end quote. Now, let me just say what might be obvious, but perhaps not. His advice on circumcision had no basis in (laughs) medical science. And so what, right? What were people getting? They were just getting his opinion. And if he was a person with some authority, why? Because he sold all these books and because he was in significant influential organizations, he was giving advice based on what? Just his own opinion, his own feelings, essentially based on his own self-esteemed, affirmed, reinforced by other people who wanted to hear what he was telling them. So he gives advice about a baby sleeping on his or her back, and then tens of thousands of babies perhaps died because their parents 
laid them on their stomachs, on their abdomens. Tens of thousands in Europe, Australia, and the U.S. died in infancy. Now, he had reasons. He's more likely to choke on the vomitus if he vomits. An infant is laying on his back. But there were equal and better reasons to not have infants lay on their stomachs when they sleep, apparently. Also, this whole business with circumcision bears no relation whatsoever to God commanded it. This is a sign of the covenant between you and your family and God. Nothing of the sort. And then the American Academy of Pediatrics in 1971 says there's no medical evidence. There's zero practical reason to circumcise little baby boys. Now, if it's a sign of a covenant, that's one thing. Great. But if it's not a sign of a covenant, why are you doing it? And then in his interview or his article for Red Book magazine, he says circumcision of males is traumatic, painful, and of questionable value. It's godlessness. It's just you're making things up. And because you're an expert, there's an irony to telling mothers you know more than you think you know, but then also needing to hear it from Dr. Spock. Like, there's an irony here. You need the experts to tell you that you know enough to be able to make good decisions in parenting your child. Figure it out. Think about it. Be intentional. You need an expert to tell you that you don't need an expert to tell you? What? Stop. That's before you even get into his being a left-wing activist, his believing in socialism. How much of his advice about parenting really was just his affinity for man in a state of nature in a Rousseauian fashion, wanting parents to bring up their children in a state of nature, essentially without parenting, believing that the ideal for parents is if they parent as little as possible, only affirm, only permit, only embrace what your child wants to do. Now, what's interesting is also 1967, Spock was pressed to run as Martin Luther King Jr.'s vice presidential running mate at the National Conference for New Politics. That did not, in fact, end up happening. He did not run for president with MLK. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated the very next year. But even with regards to MLK Jr., yes, he was a reverend. He was also a womanizer. He was also, according to an article I read some of at the Rolling Stones magazine website, yesterday, a proponent of democratic socialism. Is that true? There's only one way to find out. Study history. Be willing to learn that some of the people who've been held up as such great examples were wrong about some things. Learn from their mistakes. If they influenced certain trends, maybe don't uncritically follow those trends, but you only know these things, as David McCullough was saying, if you read history, if you have a sense of where you're coming from. Even in Joshua chapter 5, you have the sense of the previous generation having biffed it. The previous generation wandered in the desert until all of the males, all of the fighting-aged men had died in the wilderness. The previous generation biffed it. Is it dishonoring them to point that out, to know it? No. It's honoring God to not follow the example of faithlessness, disobedience, grumbling, discontentedness, rebellion. But let's come back to the present and let's consider a write-up over at the Daily Wire from Brandon Dre. Some news, August 3rd, 2023, Alabama Library cancels Moms for Liberty, Kirk Cameron Faith-Filled Story Hour event 
after hundreds RSVP. Brandon Dre writes, two days after actor Kirk Cameron and former NCAA champion swimmer Riley Gaines announced that they would be appearing at a faith-filled story hour hosted by the conservative political organization Moms for Liberty at the Madison Public Library in Alabama, the event was abruptly canceled after months of planning. Citing a capacity limit, the library's public relations director, Jay Hickson, said in a news release that the public space could no longer hold the event after the scope of attendees quickly grew from approximately 30 to 300 following the announcement from conservative influencers Cameron and Gaines, which also sparked threats from protesters about 80 miles south of Madison County. But Moms for Liberty Organizers Emily Jones and Elizabeth Stewart told the Daily Wire they're not buying the official narrative from the 200-year-old countywide library system and the Madison City Police Department. Quote, it was a directive on how to manage our group and not the protesters. Jones, the organization's Madison County chapter chair, said, quote, to me, that just indicates that the police chief is not interested in making this event go well. He wants it to go away, end quote. Two months ago, Jones said the grassroots parents group that advocates against school curricula teaching identity politics to children, including LGBT rights and critical race theory, received notice from Brave Books, a publishing company, looking to hold a story hour event in the southern state during its, quote, see you at the library, end quote, national tour taking place in nearly 300 libraries and 45 states across the country. The event is led by Cameron, star of the 1980s sitcom Growing Pains, to allow conservative Christian families to meet at public libraries around the country on August 5th as an alternative to controversial children's drag queen events, the company said on X, which is Twitter, by the way. Cameron and Gaines were not originally scheduled to appear at the Madison County event, but of the many locations booked on the tour, Jones said she received a separate email earlier this week stating that the two national conservative celebrities planned to attend. Quote, I freaked out on Elizabeth and shouted and kind of did a happy dance, end quote. The organization and Cameron shared the news on social media, drawing more attention to the event. Quote, the response was overwhelming, end quote, Jones said. As more people began expressing interest in attending, Jones said the library reached out and asked if the organizers needed additional space to hold a bigger crowd. They initially declined, suggesting holding the event outside. However, after local law enforcement confirmed threats of protests from a group out of Birmingham, they were advised to move the event to a private location, but the organization stayed firm on its position to still hold the event in the public space. Quote, this is intended to be at a library and put traditional values back into the library, so we're sticking there, end quote, Jones said. After several exchanges, the library ultimately said they would no longer support the event out of safety concerns and suggested finding a new location without providing other alternative solutions, including directing library staff to operate on a suggested first-come, first-served basis. Quote, my personal opinion is they really don't want this event to happen, end quote. Stewart, the communications lead for the organization's first and largest chapter in North Alabama, said. So consider, right? Consider for a moment. Moms for Liberty, Dr. Spock, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Consider David McCulloch's presentation from 2005 in Impermiss. And consider that there's a vested interest in parents being affirmed if the affirmation of the parents contributes to the progressive agenda being realized. But if we would know our history, if we would have a proper respect for what we are inheritors of from previous generations, then there's going to be trouble. And then the civil magistrate might say, ah, you know, let's not. Now, it's curious. What's curious here is 
the idea of canceling events because there might be protests. What's curious to me is that you have protesters opposed to this being rewarded by those who are in positions of civil authority, effectively. I mean, the takeaway from this is if you threaten to protest and to complain, no matter how worthy the event would be otherwise, you get your way. If you protest, if there will be an upset, if there will be a complaint, then the civil authorities will just give you what you want if you're of a certain persuasion. Now, what if there's a protest over canceling the event? Is the event going to be back on? What's concerning here is without a rubric, without a objective measure, the authority can be wielded in an arbitrary way with partiality towards those who want to tear down what we have inherited from previous generations. If there's no fixed objective measure, if, say for instance, Christians are not in the habit of going back to the word of God to see whether what they're hearing is true and good, then they're also not going to be in the habit when it comes to decisions from civil authorities going back to the laws, going back to the state constitution or the U.S. Constitution to see whether the decisions being made actually uphold oaths of office or perhaps are a dereliction of duty. But in that case, what have we done? We've surrendered our inheritance. We've buried the talents in a field instead of investing those talents that were entrusted to us by the master. On the one hand, you hear parents know what's best, but then it's an expert who has to tell the parents that they probably know more than they think they do. Why do they think they know so little? Because the experts demanded in a progressive scheme, technocracy. Why? Because it was self-serving, because they were self-congratulating. And then you get generations of parents who don't know how to do anything unless the experts tell them that they're allowed to do it or that they should do it. And then what if the experts give them exact opposite of what is good advice and then come out decades later after the damage has been done and say, you know, actually, we were wrong about that. If you were thinking, yeah, this is bad advice, but you did it anyways, or you didn't do the good thing, and your parents were like, what in the world? Why are you relying on these experts? And then your children were harmed. The damage has been done, and then what? We get to now. Decades later, decades down the road, 50, 60, 70 years on, and it's more of the same. I would point out, I have no problem with Kirk Cameron being a celebrity and drawing a crowd, drawing attention, lending his star power to a good cause. I have no problem with that. But maybe this is another variation on needing the experts, needing somebody who's famous to tell you that you have permission to do the thing. And then you listen. And you listen if it's an expert or if it's a celebrity because they must know. And what are we doing? We're associating popularity with this view, that agenda, this movement, that campaign. Do we need it to be popular? Maybe we want it to be popular. Do we need it to be popular in order to know the good that we ought to do? Or do we need to go back to God's word? Do we need permission from the police chief or from the staff at the library to do the good thing, to do what is right? Do we need their permission? You might say you're not going to barge in and just storm the library. But then how did we lose these spaces in the first place? We lost them because moms and dads checked out. 
for decades, tamely, passively acquiesced, handing over their children to the likes of a Dr. Spock, to the likes of a John Dewey, and not just when it came to parenting, but when it came to vocation, when it came to entertainment, when it came to every area of life, every kind of decision. Switching gears. Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee has a piece up from just yesterday. Harry's Razors just partnered with this trans influencer to sell shaving gear and its CEO referred to moms and dads as birthing and non-birthing parents. To quote the write-up from Harris Rigby, Harry's Razors is super woke. (laughs) There's a video here which I won't play because there's really not much in the way of audio for it of the advertisement. But if you want to watch the advertisement, it's there in the link in the description for this podcast episode. But what I will play for you, I will play the audio clip tweeted out by end wokeness at end wokeness on Twitter of the CEO of Harry's razors talking a little bit more about where he stands, where Harry's Racers stands on these kinds of questions, these questions of gender and parents, whether we honor parents, how we honor parents. Without further ado, here's the clip. You know, created a really sort of unbalanced dynamic um, and made the co-parenting thing really hard to actually live in practice. Um, and so, you know, that experience, you know, was, was one that led us to this conclusion that, hey, we need not just a general parental leave policy, but an equal parental leave policy um, that treats birthing and non-birthing parents equally. Um, so we've implemented that and give everybody four months, regardless of whether you're the birthing parent or the non-birthing parent. Thanks. Um, and then last, um, we also, as a company, have always tried to sort of be socially minded and not just be about um, bottom line profits. Okay, so I know that was a short clip. I know you might be thinking to yourself, there must be more context to this. But you know what? We don't actually need more context than the usage of terms like birthing parents and non-birthing parents. The terms are supposed to be Mothers and fathers, which is to say the father, here's a little biology lesson for you. The father is not the one giving birth to the child, but the father is the father. To call the father a non-birthing parent is to conflate his standing in the life of his child to collapse the distinction or the specialness of his relationship to his child into a larger, broader category, which would also include gay couples, lesbian couples who opt for in vitro fertilization, who opt for fertility treatments, who opt for science to make up for what They lack in capacity to actually have a child together because it's physically not possible for them to have a child together the way that God designed them and 
They've rejected God's design for themselves, for their sexuality, for their gender, for their family, for their home. To say that there is little to no difference meaningfully between a husband and father on the one hand, who we should honor, and on the other hand, two women who have declared themselves married and go to scientists to make up for the fact that they can't actually physically have a child together, to collapse the distinction is just the next brick in the wall. It's just the next step in abolishing any special honor that we would give to young men, young women who get married, have children, and obey God and honor God. This is the war against the social imaginary which respects God, which honors God ultimately, marching on. You actually don't need more context than just the CEO of Harry's Razors using terms like birthing parents and non-birthing parents. Because here's the other thing. Here's the other side of the coin. To say birthing parents is to erase the title of mother. It is to alienate future generations, current generations from the special honor which is due to mothers in the lives of their children. If any of my sons were to ever refer to their mother as the birthing person in relation to them, I would be profoundly displeased. I would be very unhappy. Unless they meant it as an absolute joke at the expense of the godless. But even then, I don't think this is something to joke about. This is not funny. This is dishonorable. This is abominable. This is wicked. Don't buy the products. Don't pay for the services of people like this if you don't have to. Maybe you can't help it in some places, but don't if you don't have to. And do buy the products and pay for the services of people who are more generally, more holistically, actually going to promote what is good and true and beautiful. Harry's razors, not it, not it. But also just consider that they are putting a woman who went through gender mutilation surgery, so-called gender-affirming care, but it's just that she had her breasts surgically removed from her body And then she went through hormone treatment so that she could grow facial hair, so that she would appear more masculine because she decided that she's not content with being a woman as God made her to be a woman. She wants to assert dominance over God's design for her body. And this is not to augment her strength. This is to rebel against who God made her to be. This is not no big deal. She's not a victim. What she's doing is an abomination to God according to his word. We should have no part in this. We should warn those who affirm these things 
God does not look on your affirmation as okay or no big deal or innocent. You don't have good intentions, actually. You don't care about this person you're affirming. You're only caring about yourself. You're only thinking about what rewards you get, and you don't care what happens to that person. You're not caring about what happens to this person you're affirming in declaring themselves the opposite gender. You only care about what you might avoid in the way of punishment from man. You have a fear of man issue, and you don't have a fear of God. And so you've become futile in your thinking. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You've been warned. Please don't. Please don't do this thing. Confess your sin because it is a sin. It is a sin that you affirm these things. You approve of these things. You encourage godlessness and rebellion against God, which ultimately at the end of the day is self-destructive. For those who go down this path, they are destroying themselves. They're being led away to the slaughter. You're not warning them. You're not helping them. You're not encouraging them. You're not loving them. You are assisting in their self-destruction, and thereby you're dishonoring God. Don't do it. On the other hand, though, we actually do have an example of a company taking the opposite positions, rightly so. Hop on over to The Daily Wire and a piece by Virginia Cruda highlighting how Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh as the title says, torch woke razor brand for glorifying mutilation and sterilization. I don't know that I would use the term torch. I think we need to try and wean ourselves off of the hyperbolic statements. It would be good for us if we did. But here's the write-up from Virginia Cruda. And I quote, The Daily Wire hosts Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh tore into Razor Company Harry's over the brand's promotion of the transgender activist group, The Trevor Project, a group that supports transgender treatments for minors. Both Shapiro and Walsh were responding to a video highlighted in a viral tweet by the conservative social media account and wokeness showing a trans-identifying female who appears to have already undergone top surgery, removing her breasts, going through the process of shaving. The promotional campaign promises that 100% of profits from the purchase of the advertised face and body shave kits are donated to the Trevor Project. Quote, Harry's Razors partnered with a trans man, female, to promote their razor set. 100% of the profits from this set go to the Trevor Project, which promotes gender surgeries for minors, end quote. Shapiro responded to the post by referencing Jeremy's Razors, the razor company created by Daily Wire co-founder Jeremy Boring, when Harry's pulled advertising from the site and publicly attacked the company. Quote, there's a reason we started Jeremy's Razors, end quote. Shapiro posted, quote, because you shouldn't give your money to companies that glorify mutilation and sterilization. Hashtag go woke, go broke, end quote. Daily Wire host Matt Walsh echoed Shapiro's statements and pointed to the spectacular backfire experienced by Anheuser-Busch over a similar partnership between flagship beer Bud Light, and trans-identifying influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Quote, Harry's glamorizes self-mutilation in an effort to sell razors, Walsh wrote. 
He followed the tweet by highlighting a video also posted by And Wokeness of Harry's CEO, Andy Katz Mayfield, talking about how socially minded his company was, referring to mothers as, quote, birthing parents, end quote, and fathers as, quote, non-birthing parents, end quote. Indeed, since Bud Light's ill-fated partnership with Mulvaney went public, Anheuser-Busch has placed at least two marketing executives on leave and has lost millions of dollars in addition to Bud Light falling out of favor with Americans. Retail giant Target faced similar backlash and loss of market capitalization when LGBTQ plus pride displays included so-called tuck-friendly swimwear and coming-out greeting cards. Boring responded to Harry's on Sunday as well, adding, quote, it's like they want to make me rich. That's the most charitable read, end quote. <laughs> Which is funny. I mean, it it is humorous, but also this is extraordinarily serious. When you're talking about not just men and women, but children, children being told that this is how to be happy. This is how they can stop feeling depressed and anxious. This is how they can be accepted. This is how they can, in some sense, be safe. When so much else is not to be affirmed or rewarded, this is their ticket. This is the rewarding aspirational model to be transgendered. It's not just unwise It's not just one way to live your life. It's not just that I disagree with it or that I dislike it personally or that it goes against my opinion. No, no, this is evil. This is an evil thing that is being done to these children in particular. And yes, the Trevor Project is good with promoting this to children and pushing for changes socially and politically that would take children away from their parents so that the children can be essentially not just operated on in the abstract, but so that they can be sterilized. And insofar as this dovetails so perfectly, too conveniently, with the campaign to combat climate change, I recognize this as anti-human and actually as hateful towards humankind. It dishonors God, but also the way that it dishonors God is not new. It's not original. The way that this dishonors God is by marring and corrupting man who is made in God's image. This is one of the ways in which the Imago Dei comes to the fore and should influence how we approach these issues. This is not like when you have a dog or a cat and you spay or neuter your dog or cat so that they'll be better behaved or so that you don't get litters of puppies and kittens that you don't have a place for. No, no, this is not like that. This is people. This is men and women, boys and girls made in God's image after his likeness. And remember that God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The people who have insinuated the idea that this is how these young people can be happy and find purpose and belonging, they're doing the devil's work. Quite frankly, I'm not so much one of those clean-shaven guys. I sport a beard. I am pro-beard. But if you're going to go with a razor company, go with a razor company where the proceeds are going to benefit 
the larger war effort because we are in a cultural war and what's at stake is boys and girls, future generations. If the world stands, in the grand scheme of things, these people who are pushing this stuff will go down as some of the worst villains in history. If the world stands, these children who are mutilating their bodies with the encouragement of the Democrat Party in the U.S., with the encouragement of the public education system, with the encouragement of teachers' unions, with the encouragement of pop culture and Hollywood and woke corporations, these young people will not ever be able to have children. They will be on medication to manage the symptoms of their surgeries and their puberty blockers and their supplements. They will be on medication to manage the side effects for the rest of their lives. And many of them will probably harm themselves, attempt suicide, or even actually kill themselves. And what, you expect me to believe that your silence is somehow noble and pragmatic? No, it's cowardly. If you are silent in the face of this evil, you are participating in it. And you say, oh, but so-and-so will never talk to me again. Fine, so be it. But at least you'll have a clean conscience. I mean, the flip side is we as Christians in particular, and here I am speaking to the Christians in particular, we as conservatives in particular, and here I'm speaking to actual conservatives, not just people who are freaked out by what the left is doing. Conservatives, Christians, listen. We need to know what we're about. We need to know what is true and think on these things. We need to be conversant with what is good and noble and praiseworthy and honorable and excellent. We need to live these things out. We need to set the example and it needs to be genuine and not a cardboard cutout. It needs to be heartfelt. It needs to be real. It needs to be that we really do love God. We trust God. We fear God. We don't fear man and what man may do to us. Don't fear man. Jesus said that was a command. Don't fear man who can only kill the body. That's the most they can do to you. That's the worst they can do to you. And you're like, oh, well, that's quite a lot though, actually. As a matter of fact, I rather enjoy not having my body killed. No, that's the most they can do to you is kill your body. And then there's nothing more they can do to you. Fear God, actually. That's another command. Fear God, Jesus says. Fear God who can both kill your body and throw your soul into hell, the fires of hell for all eternity. Fear God. If you fear God, you'll honor him in your own life, holistically, genuinely, without malice, without bitterness, without resentment. Put away wrath. Leave it to the wrath of God. Never avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But do be honest with people. Do warn them. Implore them to choose life, to be blessed by seeking God's face, by agreeing with God. And whatever they do, if you have a good conscience, that is the answer to the riddle. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit the soul? Your soul is worth more to you than the whole world. You can't have everything, as the old saying goes. Where would you put it? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all its inhabitants, it all belongs to God. We're just custodians. We're just caretakers. We're just stewards. We're just servants. And we can either be good and faithful servants who hear well done, or we can be wicked servants 
who are rebuked and who have what little we have taken away from us and given to someone who will actually invest it. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I have to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.